And now, Virgin Most Powerful Radio is pleased to present Hands-On Apologetics with renowned Catholic author and apologist, Gary Machuda. And welcome, everyone, to Hands-On Apologetics. You have entered into Virgin Most Powerful's Apologetics Dojo. It's great to be with you today, kicking off a brand new broadcast week. I actually had to look at the calendar and make sure it's true. Man, the weekend just flew, and uh, which is unusual because usually it drags. Because uh, if you're not doing apologetics, life kind of drags on and on. But when you're defending, sharing the faith, it's quick as that and uh weekend went quickly but hey we're back in the dojo so it's time for us to get back in our routine we're learning how to explain defend the faith with clarity charity and confidence and today's show we got a biggie on the show we have the person who kick-started the modern catholic apologetic movement here in the united states carl keating himself will be joining us and uh, as you know, if you've listened to this show for a little while, Carl comes on periodically and we review some Catholic apologetic classics. And uh, these are books that are out there gathering dust on used bookstore shelves, maybe even gathering dust on your shelves. Maybe you haven't read them in a while or you have them on your on-deck circle, but you just haven't got to them. So uh, I've been really enjoying this ongoing series with Carl because he remind, he's reminding me of all these great classics that I've read that I really need to reread. And I do reread them. <clears throat> and they're just as enjoyable uh, rereading them as the first time. Today's uh, Catholic apologetic classic, it's going to be interesting. It's called Sidelights. And it was published by Sheed and Ward. Of course, Fr the great apologist Frank Sheed had a publishing house that was in existence for quite some time. I believe they're still in existence, but uh, lately they're just not the same quality as during his lifetime. And he published Sidelights, which is something of an advertisement where it goes through the catalog of Sheed and Ward books. So we're not going to just do one Catholic apologetic classic work. We're going to go through the Sidelights and pick out some gems that, you know, I think many of us, may never have heard of or maybe you have heard of it don't really know much about and uh, so that's going to be a lot of fun so that's coming up on the other side of the break on this side of the break we're going to do what we always do we're going to sharpen our critical thinking skills with our finding the fallacy segment today's finding the fallacy is the fallacy of division uh, not mathematical division but division in another way and also we're going to meet our early church father for today who is Clement of Alexandria. Clement of Alexandria. Very interesting early church father. And uh, we have three mammoth works from him. So we'll talk a little bit about Clement of Alexandria. All of that's going to be on this side of the break. So before we begin, I want to welcome all of you to the show. So welcome aboard, all of you listening on radio around the country. And also live stream, how you doing? And lest I forget the podcast peeps, how you doing? Uh, welcome aboard, all of you listening and watching throughout the Internet and uh, throughout the the blogosphere and wherever this uh, program is available as a podcast. 
Yeah, that's uh, that's right, folks. Although this is a live radio show, we do record it and we do put it up on our website and through lots of distribution centers. So you can get a hold of it. And the main place I'd like you to go is virginmostpowerfulradio.org because that is the flagship website of Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And when you do there, you become abreast of all the things that Virgin Most Powerful is producing. They have some great events, uh, live events, recorded things, and also the shows in their archives. And so just scroll down, click on Hands on Apologetics, and boom, you'll have all our shows right there, including this one in which you can download, you can share with friends and tell people about, use it for evangelism. Or maybe you know somebody who's a bookworm, kind of like Carl and I. And uh, there are some books here that you think they might be interested in. This would be a great show to to share with them. And also as an apologist, uh, defender of the faith, you know, uh, it'd be good to listen, maybe jot down a few titles. And, of course, some maybe you're driving. You can't do that. Well, you just go to virginmostpowerfulradio.org, click on Hands on Apologetics, rewatch this. And, you know, you could pause it and write things down and make it your shopping list. Maybe you could put it on your Christmas list for this Christmas. Um, also, I want to give you the official Dojo mailbox, which is questions at handsonapologetics.com. That comes directly to me, and I do answer them at I try to do it on a timely basis, not all the time. And uh, let's see, yeah, it's Monday. Uh, didn't really give too much of a uh, plug for my website. I'm going to do that right now. If um, Well, my website's question, uh, handsonapologetics.com. That's my actual website, along with garymachuda.com. But uh, I want to talk about my YouTube channel called Apocrypha Apocalypse. Because you guys who are really into defending the faith, you know the question of the Old Testament canon is kind of like the silver bullet of apologetics. There really is no great answer um, from Protestants why they reject seven Old Testament books in the Old Testament. And so I dedicated a whole YouTube channel along with uh, William Albrecht and David Zavaris where we go into issues of the Deuteral canon, uh, the so-called Apocrypha, and I'm bringing out all sorts of new research that I've been doing on this topic, putting in video form, and it'd be great if you could check it out. And if you like it, please hit like, subscribe, uh, leave some comments, because that helps with the algorithm. And the reason I bring this up is because I'm going to be looking at a very pivotal moment in this series I've been doing on my channel, where Martin Luther rejects Second Maccabees as canonical. We're going to look at that debate, and this is coming up this Friday. We're going to premiere it, and I'm going to show you how Martin Luther flip-flopped on the canon, where he used to accept these books as inspired canonical scripture, and then here in 1519, he denies Second Maccabees. But, I mean, it's a really interesting series because we're going to, I'm going to unveil further evidence that at Leipzig, uh, it seems like Luther was, I don't know what to make of it. So, uh, because his position on the Old Testament canon was still flexible, he still believed that there were the other deuterocanonical books were still inspired in canonical scripture, just not Second Maccabees, apparently. But I'll give you all the evidence there on the channel. So just go to Apocrypha Apocalypse or type in Gary Machuda in the search engine. You'll find it. And please support us, you know, uh, thumbs up like, subscribe, things like that. 
Okay, let's go to a finding the fallacy. Today's finding the fallacy is the division fallacy. A fallacy of division is an informal fallacy that occurs when one reasons that something is true for the whole because it's true for some or all of its parts. Okay, so it, the division fallacy is the opposite of um, uh, the uh, composition fallacy. So basically it reasons that something must be true for the whole if it's true for some or all of its parts. This occurs an awful lot, folks. You need to be aware of it when it happens. Um, it's it's kind of, um, it's, it's, it takes uh, characteristics of certain parts of an element and then projects it to the whole. The classic is that you have one airplane part that's light and you can lift it, another airplane part that's light and you can lift it. Therefore, the airplane's light and you can lift it, which of course isn't true. Um, so, you know, be aware of that, uh, the division fallacy. Uh, you cannot always argue from some or all the parts to the whole. Uh, obviously, as a whole structure, it may have different characteristics or qualities that's not found in a majority or even all of its parts. And that's our finding the fallacy for today, the division fallacy. Let's talk about Clement of Alexandria. St. Clement of Alexandria is, uh, was born of pagan parents, probably in Athens, about the year 150 AD. After becoming a Christian, he journeyed to Italy, Syria, and Palestine, seeking Christian teachers for his own instruction. Finally, he met the celebrated Pantanius in Alexandria, and it was so, he was so attracted to the master that he settled there and became, in order, uh, Pantanius's pupil, associate, assistant, and then finally... He became the director of the catechetical school, catechetical school there, attaining the latter position about the year 200 A.D. Two or three years later, he was forced by persecution under Septemptius Severus to flee from Egypt, and he died in Cappadocia between the years 211 and 216 A.D. without having ever seen Egypt again. He wrote three major works that are important for apologetics, and those are the Exhortation to the Greeks, uh, the Instruction of Children, also known as the Paedagogas, and also the Stromatis, or Miscellaneous. Um, now, what Clement tries to do in these uh, books is the time has already passed where Christians no longer have to defend themselves against pagan charges, so now what he's trying to do in his whole project is to show how all wisdom, even that found within pagan sources, are ultimately fractions of the word that resides in its fullness within the Catholic Church. So um, is, uh, his works, especially the first two works, are a little bit difficult to read because he's constantly quoting pagan poets. He's quoting all sorts of sources along with scripture and showing how you know, the word was essentially uh, the divine word. I'm talking the second person of the Trinity is the instructor, instructor of all wisdom. And uh, the word became flesh and has dwelt among us, giving us definitive revelation on God. And that is our early church father for today, Clement of Alexandria. And coming up on the other side of the break, we're going to have the great Carl Keating join us. We're going to go over Christian classic, actually several Christian classics, so you don't want to miss it. Stay tuned.
Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody, Hands-On Apologetics. And as I mentioned earlier in the show, we're going to go over some, actually, maybe several possible Catholic apologetic classics with our good friend Carl Keating. Carl Keating, as you know, is the founder of Catholic Answers. Nowadays, he's a full-time author. So far, he's written over 16 books. Uh, and also, many of them are Catholic apologetic classics in their own right, like Catholicism Fundamentalism, Debating Catholicism series, Book for Life, No Apology. Now, he writes on a series of genres, like religion, also outdoors, self-publishing, and such. And Carl Keating... Welcome back to Hands-On Apologetics. Gary, it's always a delight to be with you. Yes, and it is for me as well, because, you know, I've read a lot of the books that we've gone over, and they've been sitting on my bookshelves, and uh, almost always, after I talk to you, I pull them back off, read them, and I enjoy them even more. So uh, this has been a treat for me personally, and I'm sure for the audience. So what are we going to do today? We're going to do something that maybe doesn't quite fit under our label here. This is Hands-On Apologetics and in the more or less monthly episode of discussing great apologetical works of the past. The book we're going to look at today is by a great apologist, but I don't know that the book itself would be called a work of apologetics. Hmm. But I think we can shoehorn this in by saying it's a book that will guide people to other books that, in fact, deal with apologetics. And that great apologist I mentioned is Frank Sheed. I think both you and I consider him the greatest Catholic apologist of the 20th century. And uh, the book is one that's almost completely unknown, and it's called Sidelights on the Catholic Revival. It was published by Sheed and Warren, his publishing house, in 1940. And what it consists of is about 75 one-and-a-half to two-page discussions of books that the Sheed and Ward Publishing House had published over the previous 12 years or so. And uh, it's really a collection of marketing materials. Hmm. Uh, Each of these things was sent out in a newsletter that Sheedon Ward would mail to its list of customers. Uh, Back in those days, of course, nobody even imagined email and the equivalent. So you had to market either by taking display ads in newspapers or magazines, or, and, uh, if you have a mailing list developed, sending out uh, a bulk mailing. Well, you know, it came to be known, unfortunately, as junk mail, because a lot of this the stuff was, would be of no interest to anybody. But uh, Sheen and Ward would send out, I think monthly, a newsletter about its upcoming and current books. And uh, in the foreword to this book, which, is, again, is called Sidelights, Sheen says, uh, this book was nearly called Our Own Trumpet, It's a selection from the articles which have appeared in our house organ during the last 12 years. I wrote the articles in the first place to sell books. In republishing them, I do not overlook the possibility that they still may sell books. I mention this to save readers the trouble of discovering it for themselves. Uh, 
why, you may ask, should you pay good money to buy a book whose purpose is thus openly mercenary? Why do you buy any book for information, efficacious entertainment, or even to prop up a table leg? But a book may very well inform, edify, entertain, or prop a table leg, even if part of its purpose is to persuade you to buy other books. So, uh, so he's, you know, he's being candid about this in a, in a witty way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so what we have here then are, like I say, about 75 uh, short, a few hundred word, uh, promos for particular books. But one thing I discovered in reading these, they're not at all what you would expect. Now, you know, nowadays we have sort of in-your-face advertising, even when it's textual matter. And, uh, you know, headlines like, The Shocking Truth About the Filioque Clause, something like that. Right. And, and you know, you, you don't have any of that in this. This is a laid-back, calm, discursive discussion. And she even presumes on the part of his readers, which is to say his customers, prior customers, that uh, they already know to some degree some of the figures, some of the people who are, are writing the books that he's, he's bringing out. And, uh, but he, he gives you know, a, a bit of background. And uh, I think the first one here, uh, which is of a book by Carl Adam, the German theologian, and who uh, was born in 1876, um, but still was was, uh, around, I guess, uh, at the time this came out. Uh, This is promotion of one of his books, and. She gives a bit of a background on him and how he was a professor and got driven out of universities and uh, such and so forth. And uh, he says this about the book that actually is, I don't think it's even named in this, in this promo piece. But he said, Carl Adam has stated his purpose with great succinctness, quote, to render the spirit of Catholicism intelligible to the contemporary mind. Uh, okay, this must have been his book, The Spirit of Catholicism, yeah. because that, that was, that's his most famous book. Okay, and then she goes on. Every word of this phrase is worth weighing. It expresses all that has been, all that has made him the standard bearer of the new apologetic. He does not seek to prove other people wrong, or even to prove Catholicism right, but simply to render it intelligible. So I think a couple things can be said here. First, Sheed says of Adam that uh, he's the standard bearer of the new apologetic, and that was in Caps, new apologetic. Well, that was generous of Sheed, but I think actually the credit goes to Sheed himself. Mm-hmm. And um, for all that, Adam and other writers who were slightly older than Sheed, Adam about two decades older, um, I really I would give the credit for the revivification of apologetics in the early 20th century to Sheed, his wife, Maisie Ward, the publishing house, Sheed and Ward, and the Catholic Evidence Guild in London, which they organized, not so much organized, but led for a couple of decades, beginning in the 1920s. Hmm. But 
so that's one thing. I'll ask whether, Gary, you weigh in on that. Would you agree with that, or would you would you place the initial push for this new apologetic with somebody other than she, and maybe even somebody other than Carl Adam? Yeah, um, you know when you when he quoted Carl Adam, I thought the description actually was Sheeds because that's what she does really well. It, you know, I'm thinking of his theology and sanity, right, where it's so clear and comprehensible. Um, so I, I think you know maybe in his goal, it aligns with Sheed, but I think you're absolutely right. Carl uh, Adams is not in the same league as. Frank Sheed. Frank Sheed did a lot more in many different ways than than Adams ever did. Yeah, you know, going back to the sentence here that Sheed writes, he says of Adam that he does not seek to prove other people wrong, nor even to prove Catholicism right, but simply to render it intelligible. And I think there are a lot of lessons right in that sentence. Yeah, uh, you know the the. Apologetics, as you and I have known it for a number of decades, as it came to be re- revived again, re-revived, I suppose, after Shade Era when it went into decline in the 50s and then came back in the, the later 80s. The apologetics that we've experienced and the, the apologists, sort of independent apologists who, who uh, maybe were just doing it as a kind of side thing, uh, what we could observe is that there were not a few who thought their job was to prove the other guy wrong. And that was apologetics. And you might in fact have to prove the other guy wrong to get past something and to move on to something else. But that shouldn't really be, I think, your first goal. Your goal prior to that isn't even, as she says here, to prove Catholicism right because you can prove somebody wrong on an issue without proving the Catholic faith right on that issue. Maybe you're, maybe it is right, but you just don't have the tools in your possession to make that argument. So you might be able to prove somebody is wrong about something, and yet you still don't know enough or haven't developed the argument to prove Catholicism right. But what you probably could do is this: the third part of Sheed's sentence, which is, to prove or to render Catholicism intelligible. And once you do that, I think once you get past the sometimes bigotry of the anti-Catholic or the laziness of the Catholic or or the the non-Catholic or the person who's of no particular faith, once you make Catholicism intelligible and show how all of its parts, in fact, fit together beautifully like a fine, old-fashioned watch mechanism. Once you do that, you've actually got most of the the way toward proving it true and for proving the other guy wrong where he disagrees with the Catholic take on something. Yeah. No, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, in in some ways, I think that's maybe even more persuasive than uh, tearing apart or debunking or critiquing because the, the the faith, when it's understood correctly, has this inherent draw to itself, you know, inherent beauty, uh, inherent power. And I, I agree 100% with what you said, that it, when you're able to 
explain clearly and uh, in a way that's uh, accurate. The faith does the evangelism itself. You don't really have much more to do. It'll prove itself true and debunk error. Yeah, you know, each of us, in years past at least, had to actually go after some error and prove it wrong. For example, there was a time, not that long ago, there were still anti-Catholic Protestants who, whose main argument, it seemed, against the Church was that there were secret tunnels connecting monasteries and nunneries, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and that the monks and nuns would, would have illegal assassination, you know, by connecting the, the two establishments. Well, sometimes on that kind of thing, for example, what you really need to do is show they don't, those such tunnels never existed. There's no evidence of them, so on and so forth, you know. Uh, but because you need to get past, for some people, a certain level of arch prejudice. If you don't do that, they, they can't take in, in anything else. Yeah, 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 absolutely. We're chatting with Carl Keating and talking about Catholic apologetic classics. Actually, we're looking at Frank Sheed's uh, sidelights for thumb right after this. This is Jesse Romero. You're listening to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And welcome back, everybody. We're with Carol Keating. We're talking about Frank Sheed's book about books, I guess you could describe it, and uh, specifically his mention of Carl Adams, the great Catholic writer last century. And, Carl, right before the break, you're making a real important point that that doesn't mean that there's no need for debunking or you know removing these obstacles um, because there there is this kind of prejudice out there based on myth. But once you do that, then that opens the, the way for just explaining the faith as it is. That's right. Uh, you know, whether it's on religion or politics or art appreciation or whatever, many people have prejudices that are set like stone. Mm-hmm. And unless you deal with those first, you can't discuss anything with them on those topics. Uh, the, the ears are entirely shut to anything you say, because this particular prejudice, whatever it might be, and there may be several prejudices, in fact, um, this prejudice will simply make, the, make it impossible for them to entertain the possibility of, for example, that what you say about the Catholic faith is not just true, but illustrates that the faith is important, needs to be taken seriously, and uh, very possibly might be true. So we as apologists have to do a bit of a balancing act. On the one hand, we need to handle those kinds of problems of this really ingrained prejudices. But parallel to that, we need to do the other things that she mentioned in discussing Carl Adams' book, which is to explain, to defend the Catholic truth of something, but also simply to share what the Catholic faith is about. So not just proving that this or that doctrinal or moral issue is correct, but giving a broader picture of what the faith is about. So uh, that's not always an easy thing, that balancing act, uh, not always an easy thing to accomplish successfully. And we both have seen over the years 
any number of well-intentioned Catholics who get involved online or with public talks or even parish presentations who have not been very successful in doing that. They might have success in debunking a prejudice, but they're not able to, to move on from that. And so they always are talking somewhat with a negative tone. And if, if there's a prejudice, if there's an error, there's naturally a, a negative approach to it because you're saying this is incorrect. But, uh, you know, we've seen folks who can't get past that. We've seen others who make no effort to correct the errors and then give a proper, perhaps, explication of the faith. But their explanation seems to have no effect because still the ears of their listeners who are stuck in these prejudices are closed to them. And so you need to take several things into account. And just as a physician will have a certain sequence in uh, tending to a patient's ailments, First, we need to do this and then this, you know, maybe the, the, the injection of, of a medication first, and then you change your diet, and then you do exercise. Some, there's some sequence there that makes logic and achieves in the long run health. And you get, if you get out of that sequence, though, perhaps the patient doesn't improve. So, like I say, it's a bit of a balancing act. It's something that, that one hopes those engaged in apologetics come to realize earlier than later as they pursue their vocation or avocation, however the case may be. Um, but it's something that she certainly uh, was a good example of someone who I think had the balancing act down very well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And yeah, I think beginners, when they start learning how to defend the faith, the first, the, the easiest step is the debunking, I think. Uh, it's easy to uh, to get this resources to prove something, some error is indeed an error. But, you know, it does take some mastery where you can get a good grasp of the faith and be able to, pers- you know, give a persuasive overview of the faith. That is that second part that I think you, it requires some maturity. And, and Frank Sheed, I, you know, the Catholic evidence skills certainly prepared him as far as debunking errors, but it also kind of helped them develop uh, giving a positive exposition of the faith as well. So maybe it was the Catholic Evidence Guild that kind of helped them develop those two aspects. Yes, uh, because, I mean, he came to the Guild in the 20s with a lot of knowledge, but not yet much experience in how to put the knowledge to use, especially when speaking in public. And, you know, there's the story that we've shared before about him as a beginning speaker at Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park, London, where every weekend there'd be maybe a dozen or two dozen so-called pitches, that is, short platforms that were put out there, and groups of various kinds would get up and speak and try to gather a crowd. Um, Hyde Park is a very popular place to be walking through on a nice weekend, uh, you know, in London. And so you could get dozens or hundreds of people listening to you. And the first time she'd got up, um, he was right after speaker who was successful in getting a large crowd gathered. And she began to talk and he lost the crowd very quickly. 
And so the previous speaker took him down and got up and, you know, got the crowd back. And Sheed went up again and talking on some other issue and again lost the crowd because of his style, perhaps. And the previous speaker got up and got the crowd back again. Uh, the previous speaker was a woman, and she'd remarked that he was so impressed with her that he married her. <laughs> so that was Maisie Ward. So, yeah. so uh, she'd really became, in a way, a good apologist because of his wife, and then became you know, a great apologist later. Uh, let me move on in the book. Again, this okay. book is called Sidelights, published in 1940. Just as this book is a collection of fairly short promo pieces that were used to market several dozen books that the Sheen Ward House had put out. One of the books was a collection of uh, actually radio presentations. And that book was, was called Broadcast Minds. It was by then Father Ronald Knox. Uh, Knox, many people don't realize, not only a wonderful writer, but for many years he appeared uh, regularly on the BBC, and I think maybe some other areas, uh, giving a presentation uh, over the radio. And so in Broadcast Minds, uh, the Sheedman Ward House put together a lot of these radio um, scripts that uh, Knox had worked up. And in the here two and a half page promo that she writes about Knox's book, he has some lines that uh, I find somewhat humorous. I think go back to what you and I were just talking about. He uh, is saying, you know, what is controversy? What is discussion? And then he goes on to say, she does. Now, in this sense, there's no tradition of religious discussion. Most often, such discussion as we have known has been reducible to Protestants saying that Alexander VI had four children and a Catholic retorting that Henry VIII had six wives. <laughs> and he goes on to say, thus religious controversy has acquired a thoroughly bad name. Uh, and, in the, you know, I can still remember seeing in print, I haven't so much heard it directly, but that kind of argument, you know, Pope Alexander VI had you know, four children. Well, so what? The man who founded your religion, Henry VIII, had six wives. So which is worse? <laughs> That's not much of an argument. Um, it, it may tell you something about the human condition of some famous men, but it doesn't really tell you anything at all about whether Anglicanism or Catholicism is true, or if either one is true, uh, or and if one is, which one is it? Which one is the true one? So, uh, so Knox, you know, had um, uh, would make that kind of this argument, you know, uh, in his radio presentations, and I happen to have uh, a copy of what I think are the only extant recordings remaining of Knox on the radio. Wow. Uh, and it's a CD I got some years ago. It includes maybe half a dozen 
short talks. Uh, one of them was that the, the, this, uh, I was about to say famous, but actually uh, it's not all that broadly known, but a, a radio presentation he made in 1926 where it was a satire, it was a kind of spoof, but it, it, it was sort of the precursor of H.G. Wells' War of the World, which if, if you remember when Wells presented that, on radio uh, in London, many listeners actually thought that Martians were invading and that the world was going up in flames. Right. They hadn't listened to the early part of the program that said what's following is a is a fanciful drama. <laughs> so they came in to the show five minutes too late and decided to, to pack the car and get out of town. <laughs> well, right. Knox had, had beaten... Wells, uh, or in this case, uh, the, the, the story of, of the invasion, um, he had beaten uh, Orson Wells to the punch by a number of years. And in his, his radio presentation, there was a riot in London, and people were marching on Parliament, and were, were bombarding it with, with trench mortars, and were very upset. Uh, and, the, and the guy who led this demonstration was the chairman of a of an organization called the Society for the Prevention of Long Theater Cues, or something like that. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. Uh, well, I hear the music coming up, Carl. We'll hit pause right there. We're chatting with Carl Keating, talking about uh, this book called Sidelights by Frank Sheehan. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody. Hands-on apologetics. We're chatting with Carl Keating, talking about Sheed's uh, booklet, I guess you could say, Sidelights, where he's highlighting various books that Sheed and Ward had published. And we were talking about the great Ronald Knox. And, uh, yeah, I never knew that, Carl. Uh, in fact, you kind of surprised me. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't aware that Knox was on the radio as such. Yeah, apparently quite a lot. And, you know, unfortunately, back in those days, uh, in the 1930s particularly, there wasn't much effort made or maybe not a capacity to make recordings of the thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we have very few of his uh, commentaries uh, in audio form. And so it's a delight. And uh, it was one of those cases where uh, you listen to somebody who lived a long time ago, and you may be surprised by the way his voice sounds. It's not, <laughs> it's not quite what you imagine. In Knox's right. case, it's sort of what I expected. Uh, I think I heard some of them. Um, I've got also some Hiller Belloc recording. And, you know, Belloc was a very big man. I mean, both tall and big in girth. Uh, so you'd expect a low voice, but he actually had a rather high voice. And so it was a bit disconcerting because you, you don't, you know, it's like you, you see a bassoon and out comes a piccolo in terms right. of sound. So right. um, uh, one of the other books, one of the later books in, in, in Sidelights that she promotes is by someone uh, that I have to admit I've never read, Daniel Sargent. Uh, but he wrote a book about Thomas More. 
and this was before Moore was uh, canonized, I believe. Um, anyway, he's he's talking about, uh, as you know, uh, Moore is martyred, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so, I'm going to retract what I said a moment ago. <laughs> what I said before he's canonized, that's not, that's not what I meant to say. But Moore was, was martyred, of course, uh, and uh, under Henry VIII, whom he had served as chancellor uh, in England. And this book, among other things about Moore, talks about his last moments. And to some people, they were scandalous. And the people that, who were scandalized were chiefly the later Puritans. Because Moore goes to the gallows uh, joking. And uh, she writes here, the jokes were a grave charge against him in the Puritan months mouths of the next century, particularly that he should have joked on the way up the scaffold steps. It was held, apparently, as a sign of frivolity. I suggest that someone might write a thesis on the absence of jokes in Fox's Book of Martyrs. Not one of those men died laughing. Now, Fox's Book of Martyrs, written by John Fox, was published in 1563, so, you know, nearly three decades after Moore was executed. And it was uh, supposedly the, the, the uh, story of the Catholic Church's persecution of English Protestant believers. And uh, these were people, you know, under Bloody Mary and so on, people who were, who were killed. Um, and there are a lot of historical inaccuracies in in, in Fox's book. But I think this point that uh, this author remarks, and that she continues with, is that none of those martyrs had apparently a sense of life's purpose and a sense of their own death the way that Catholic martyrs like Thomas More did. And if you're going up to get your head chopped off or to be hanged or to be drawn and quartered or to be shot or whatever the case may be, and you're laughing or joking about it, that I could see from a Puritan point of view that could be only frivolity. But it more likely is that uh, there's a kind of, in these holy people you know, who, are, who are willingly being martyred, they don't want to be, but they're willing to, to be, uh, they realize that they're about to see their Lord and King in a few minutes. And uh, there's a joy in that. And there's a joy in dying for his sake and in defense of what he really taught and of his church. Uh, where all those who are mentioned in Fox's book, there's nothing parallel to that. So I thought that was a rather interesting little huh, sidelight in the book spotlights. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, when you were when you're talking about that I was thinking of St. Lawrence. Right? St. Lawrence uh joked about <laughs> yeah, yeah. B- being done on one side and flip them over to the other. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he, yeah. He, he was on the griddle and uh yeah, I'm done on this side, flip me over the flames, you know. Yeah. Uh, 
you can't imagine anyone but a Catholic having that attitude. And even then, of course, most most Catholics who are killed for their faith can't even muster that kind of um, saintly response. But it's entirely absent from, so far as we know, from the Protestant analog of that. Okay. Hmm. Uh, so, I mean, there have been many good Protestants who, even in our own times, have been killed for their faith, for example, in parts of the Middle East. Um, but, you know, none of them, so far as we know, have gone to their deaths the way Thomas More did. Hmm. Interesting. So, um, yeah, that is an interesting sidelight. Here's another thing, uh, in a, in a chapter, short chapter here, two-pager, uh, pushing a book by um, Father Martindale, who for a time was, was very popular, especially in England, for his writings about the faith. Uh, she ends by saying this, if we are right in thinking that the importance, rather than the fact, of God's existence is the principal question of modern apologetics, then this book is vital. It's an interesting distinction. The importance of God's existence rather than the fact of God's existence. I think he means by that that it's it's more important for us as apologists to prove or argue that that God exists is important. Yes. Uh, that's in some way that's a fact, but it's more important to say that it's important to the human person that God exists. We can we can use our minds and prove that He exists. Not everybody will accept the argument, of course, but it can be done. And so it's it's good that we do that. But it's more important to prove that God is important, that that He should be the focus of our lives. So. As apologists, we don't want to, we should not want to settle for simply saying, ah, I've proved that God exists. Well, that's it. I'll go off and have my dinner now. Uh, but right. what we need to do, if we can, is to not just show that he exists, but to show that he exists is important and ought to make a difference in your life. It ought to, the, the fact that he's there should be so important that it colors everything, it undergirds everything. And there should be nothing in your evaluation of the world around you, in your evaluation of yourself or others. Nothing should be done outside the constant presence, shall we say, of this realization that God is important and that he needs to be the thing that's, that's, that steers our little ships, you know. Right. Uh, so as apologists, we need to keep both a narrow mind and a broad mind. Narrow mind, okay, we've got to prove to this non-believer that God exists. But we, that, but that's not enough, because then he could go away and say, okay, I'll accept not that God exists, but so what? Okay, why should it make a difference to me? So the really the key part, if we want his life to change, not just his mind, but his life, we need to prove not just that God exists, but the fact that he exists is, is so important that it should change you completely. Mm. And sometimes, you know, apologists don't go that further step. And, you know, they do 
the listener a disservice. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of the unspoken assumption, right, behind it. Uh, it's something that is part of the air that we breathe as Catholics, right, that God is important. And uh, and maybe most Catholics really haven't thought about why, you know, it's necessarily important and how God's existence affects everything that we are and that we do. Uh I, you know, I think that's a great blind spot, and I think you're absolutely right. That is actually, in some ways, almost as important, if not more important, than just giving a, a demonstration for God's existence and leaving it at that. Yeah, because if that's all you do, you can turn an atheist into a theist. But into a theist who says, okay, I believe it exists, but I believe the planet Pluto exists. And it doesn't make any difference in my life. Right, Why should yeah. I make a difference in my life? Yeah. So, yeah, we need we need to have a broader look, a broader sense of what we, those of us who are engaged in apologetics, are ultimately trying to do for the people who are part of our audience, whether they're already Catholics and maybe even good Catholics, whether they're non-Catholics uh, who are disinterested in religion, whether they are anti-Catholics of either the atheist or the Protestant variety, who have many confusions about the faith and, and seriously misunderstand it. But for all those different kinds of people, we need to have a short-term goal, such as to the atheist, prove that God exists. But we need to know that for their benefit, we need to go to longer-term goals, such as to show what God's existence ought to mean in your life and how the acceptance of it ought to change your life. So, you know, it's it's easy for us to stop short of going the full distance. So we do good as apologists by getting to the, the atheist to be a theist, okay, but there's more that we could do to assist him to get where he ought to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, very good. Boy, what a great discussion. Carl, thank you so much for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Always great to be with you, Gary. Thanks. And, uh, yeah, folks, uh, check out Carl Keating's books. Uh, He has, like I said, a lot of Catholic classics uh, of his own right right there. You can go to carlkeating.com or just go on Amazon, type in Carl Keating, and check out his works as well. Wow. All right. The hour's gone. But coming up next, High Impact Catholic Talk coming at you with the Terry Jesse Show. Thank you so much for listening. And God willing, we'll be back again tomorrow. Do this thing called hands-on apologetics. Bye-bye, everyone.